Hi, I'm Ellie Carter from Extended, and if you've been enjoying our podcast, we really need your help. We need a few moments of your time to review Extended on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast player. A five-star review would be brilliant, and it would be great if you could add some text as well. The more positive reviews, the better chance we have of raising the profile of the podcast and bringing even more great guest content in the future. It will only take a few moments of your time, and we would really appreciate your support. Thank you. The whole sort of briefing, debriefing and everything else on an airliner is how are you going to take off, how are you going to depart, how are you going to approach, how are you going to land. Um, whereas that was just taken as red on, in a military airplane because that wasn't important you do that. As part of the course, what you were interested in is the bit in the middle where it's in an airline. That's the easy bit. You get airborne, put the airplane in, have a cup of tea. Um, so that 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 was was very, very different. Welcome to the latest episode of Extended. Email us now. Get involved at aviation-extended.co.uk. And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. It's time to talk aviation. Hello there, I'm Peter Johnson and welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. And today I'm joined by Gareth Stringer and Gareth is Managing Editor of Global Aviation Resource. Gareth, how are you today? I'm really good, Peter. How are you? Yeah, great, great. Just saw that E3 doing circuits around Birmingham. What a sight. I know, a, a rare a rare treat. We're fairly used to sort of C-17s, A-400s and quite a lot of helicopters heading up this way for a bit of training. But uh, no, that was a nice sight today. Yeah, great, great to see. Now, our guest today is normally associated with fighter jets but he is also a recognised author for aviation history and was, of course, our guest in episode 114, talking about his latest book at, at the time, The Korean Air War. Most notable, though, for his book, Tornado Over the Tigris. Mike's military career spanned almost two decades, but what is less well known is that for 21 years, Michael Napier was a pilot and captain at British Airways. And that's going to be the topic of conversation today, how he migrated from his military fast jet flying to the classic airliners and then ending his airline career flying some of the most sophisticated airline jets of the day. Mike, welcome back to Extended. Well, thank you very much for having me back, Peter. It's great to have you back. And we sort of slipped into the conversation when we when we last talked um, about what happened when you left military service. Um, but for those of you who don't know you, and I, I can't believe there are many who listen to the show who don't know you, can you just give us a little bit of a flavour for um, what happened before your airline career? Yeah, I, I joined the RAF um, as a keen young chap at the uh, age of uh, 18 um, as a university cadet. 
uh, marched my way through a, a university course and then flying training and arrived uh, flying the Tornado GR1 uh, based out at Bruggen in Germany in uh, 1985. Um, spent well, I'm going to say spent 10 years doing that. I had a break in the middle uh, at Chivna when, when all my uh, colleagues went off and were very brave fighting the Gulf War. I was actually uh, at Chivna in Devon uh, instructing on the Hawk at the Tactical Weapons Unit, but then went back to Bruggen. Um, so I finished there in uh, in 94, actually, uh, then spent um, a year and a bit at headquarters at Rheindalen um, as a staff officer. Then moved across uh, across the UK when, when that headquarters closed uh, to Innsworth, Gloucester, and uh, did 18 months there um, before leaving um, the RAF and joining good old BA. So, give us a flavour, Mike, for that for that transition. I mean, how did the move to BA come about, and how how did it go for you? What did it feel like going from that, well, a staff HQ role? Uh, and flying fast jets to the flat end of a of an airliner. Uh, yeah, it was it was a big step. Um, and the first thing that I that I had to do was to get myself um, uh, air transport pilot's license, um, and that involved an awful lot of ground school because you actually it started assuming that you knew nothing about um, about flying, so you're given no credit really for for having spent twenty odd years flying fairly sophisticated military aircraft, uh, back to the drawing board, lots of exams, funny thing, at great expense, thank you to the CAA, um, and then had to go off and get an instrument rating. Um, and there was a guy down at Exeter, um, and I'm trying to remember what the name of his um, his school was, a guy called Brian Marindon, who was an ex-Cathay um, chap. And he had very quickly um, clocked on to the fact that he could get military pilots trained quite quickly, because he's quite quite used to, he's an ex-Navy man himself, um, and, uh, and and so myself and a mate of mine, uh, an exact contemporary actually, both went down and spent um, a month there getting our, our license. And that, that was interesting actually because it was a massively steep learning curve trying to fly this um, old Seneca sort of around on one engine doing NDB approaches and things when, when we were used to flying around you know, fast jets doing TACAN approaches or PARs or, and generally you know, looking out the window. Um, so that was a massive learning curve. And I mean, the great thing for me was my mate was actually an ex-Red Arrows pilot and he was flying as difficult as I was. So I felt quite good about that. So armed with the <laughs> ATPL and um, then waited for um, the airlines to start um, recruiting. Um, and in fact, in my typical naive way, I, I started applying to um, airlines saying, well, I should be uh, leaving the RF in two years time. And, uh, you know, what about a job then? And somebody said to me, mate, they, they look about um, you know, a week ahead. There's no point in troubling yourself because whatever happens in t- two years time is just so far <laughs> off their radar. And I don't think that's changed at all, really. But yeah, I was very lucky. I got called into um, to British Airways to go off for, for an interview and uh, they have a, a various little sort of tests and things you have to do. And then heard that I'd successfully got through that but was then awaiting um some sort of allocation if indeed there would be one and it, and it was all kind of at that stage a, a typical sort of airline well we might need you we might not um and then i got a phone call saying hi mike how would you like to uh, to start um in september and uh, you'll be flying the dc-10 <laughs> i thought what 
<laughs> didn't realize they had any. So uh, yeah, quickly, hasty looked through the books and discovered what a DC-10 was and uh, and realized that the BA did actually have them. They were, um, I think there were seven aircrafts in the end that they had, which had been inherited from uh, British Caledonian when that was um, either amalgamated or taken over, depending on which way you look at it. Um, and uh, so myself and the guy that I joined BA with on the same day, on the 1st of September 1997, uh, were the sort of last two pilots to be trained onto the airplane. Uh, he was the most junior one because he was a bit younger than me. That's everything that stopped me from being the most junior pilot on the, on the DC-10 fleet. Um, and yeah, so we spent, I think, a month um, about that, um, uh, living in little be um, bed and breakfast um, in Crawley doing the, the ground school. And, and that was really old clunky stuff. It was a big sort of um, they're called carousels and it literally was that you had carousel of 35 millimeter slides it went click 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 and, and and took you through the various systems of the of the airplane when you finished the hydraulics carousel you went and got the next one oh, electrics go through that and mind-numbingly boring but there we go um uh, but again just a, an indication of, of quite how complex these machines um, are um and then after that it was uh, a simulator phase and i can't remember how many simulators we did but it's about 10 or 15 i think um, and when it got interesting was you know apart from learning to fly the thing and, and, and going through the various systems that were demonstrated to us as we we're flying you know, simulated flying around in it um was uh, getting into emergencies and um the or emergency procedures um uh, uh, and the 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 geometry of the um, DC-10 flight deck was uh, if you came in through through the flight deck door, the first guy was the flight engineer who sat side on and kind of blocked the entire path. And this huge crates of uh, all his dials and things in front of him. Um, on the left, so just sort of over his left shoulder was the captain. Um, and from his seat, he could just turn very slightly and he could see the whole of the, the, the engineer's flight, uh, flight engineer's panel. Um, and then right in the far corner was me, the good old first officer. And the moment that anything kind of happened, the first thing was that the flight engineer and the captain kind of looked at each other and then started talking to each other um, because that, that was just the natural sort of flow that, you know, that, that could be done. And meanwhile, around the corner, me sat in, the, you know, was kind of, I would say almost left out. But um, you kind of told it, yeah, you'd get on a flight, boy, while the two of us sort of um, professionals sort out the problem. Um but the one that was really impressive was the, um, do you remember that there was the um, accident at Sioux City where uh, I think the number two engine up in the tail uh, exploded and, and um, one of the blades took out the hydraulic system because there, there was a node there where all three hydraulic systems joined together rather, rather badly designed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the result of that was that they had no hydraulics at all, but they still did manage to fly the aeroplane um, more or less um, successfully. Uh, just using the, the pitch power coupling um, on the um, on the end, I put power on, the nose goes up, uh, bring the power back, the, you know, the nose drops, um, left engine up, right engine back, turns you to the you know to the right, and and, and vice versa, and and they amazingly managed to um, to get this airplane, and and probably would have been successful in doing uh, you know, admittedly a, a, a hard landing, but a landing anyway, uh, at Sioux City. But uh, just, I think, at the last minute, there was a gust of wind which sort of flipped the aeroplane over. So um, although a lot of people died and a lot of people also survived that particular accident, but as a result of that, McDonnell Douglas um, made a modification to the DC-10 hydraulic system. And there was a, um, 
sorry, the word has just escaped me, but but, but basically a, a little reservoir that um, contained just enough hydraulic fluid in the event of, of the rest of it all escaping to drive the um, horizontal ta um, tail up and down a bit using the, the trim system. And so what you could do with this was to um, set yourself up sort of uh, 20 or 30 miles out and there was enough um, uh, control over the airplane using using the horizontal um, stabilizer and asymmetric thrust and whatever you needed to to fly a very very accurate ILS landing. So you know, the, give, give them okay the problem in the first place. But but if it but if it had, had ever happened again, yeah, there's a very good chance that you could fly the airplane very accurately to a touchdown somewhere. So that really did give you, I think, a lot of um, a faith in, in in the machine and um, you know how well designed it, it was. Um, after that, it was uh, across to do base training over at Chateau Roux. So it was uh, go off and, and fly circuits. And uh, you deal, the deal was to sit there and fly. I think it was do you know, three consistently good landings and uh, and then you got through. So uh, went off and did that and, and then set loose flying passengers. Um, I, I was very, under the very, very close um, supervision of, of a training captain. Um, and for me, I, I, I did... Um, mentioned this story earlier on that uh, we we're on our way to one of the routes was to Atlanta and the um, the navigation displays in, in the DC-10 were, were, were quite archaic and uh, you had to, um, if what one pilot would select certain nav aids but then you didn't get a read across to what the other pilot had and doing an approach that involved I think a VOR and then turning onto an ILS you then had to kind of swap things over. Um, and the result of this was I got a little bit behind the airplane and came into Atlanta and did a rather hard landing. Um, and the training captain very helpfully looked at me and said, well, I don't know what you did wrong there, but but you blew that, didn't you? And uh, I was supposed to be the the, the, the non-handling pilot on the way back. In other words, I would be, I would do all the sort of uh, the co-pilot stuff. So he said, well, you better fly on the way back. And of course, I went back into Gatwick. I went and did the same thing. So, and he was equally helpful saying, well, I don't know what you did wrong there, but you, did, you blew that, didn't you? So I was dispatched back in the simulator again, <laughs> where um, a training co-pilot was, who was very good, actually. He said, right, let's have a look at what you're doing. And uh, he said, fly around a bit. And uh, after five minutes, he said, right, this is what you this is what you're doing wrong and this is how you're going to fix it and uh, so i did that did a bit more base training because there, there was another opportunity um uh, to do that at chateau and that went fine so yeah and that was me back through the system and the uh, what i learned really was that the landing the dc-10 was was almost done on numbers it was an airplane that was very very stable um it really did just sit there like a rock and uh, if, w once you got it lined up on on, on the approach and sort of that last thousand feet you just left everything and it just drove itself down and then uh, i think it's 150 feet close all three thrust levers and then at 50 feet i just start pitching up towards seven and a half degrees i mean the airplane actually came in with the nose up quite a long way if, if you look at, at you know if, should you ever see a dc10 or a kc10 or something you'll notice that it comes in very high nose high and it's just a matter of pitching up another two and a half degrees get seven and a half nose up and then it would just touch down very very nicely um it was a i say very stable uh, the other thing the peculiarity of, of the airplane was that it um had a and the reason i guess that it that, that it was quite so stable was it i must have had, i guess a fairly high wing loading and it needed to have the slats out below about 270 knots now most um airliners there's a speed limit below 10,000 feet of 250 knots uh, but so in the 10 we had a dispensation and it used to be printed on virtually all the departures and arrival things so speed limit 250 knots brackets except dc 10 270 knots um 
but yes, yeah, so down to down to um, using the the, the, yeah, the slats at a relatively high speed for for the aeroplane. Uh, the other peculiarity was that it had uh, an infinitely variable takeoff um, flap. So on most aeroplanes, there's a flap setting that you use as a standard for, for takeoff, and then there'll probably perhaps be another um, for use on short runways, a bit, bit more flap to get you able a bit sort of bit, a bit quicker, a bit more slowly. Um, but the DC-10, um, it, it was infinitely variable almost. So you, every takeoff, you went into the sort of big book of tables and, and then went through and it gave you a thrust setting and it gave you, um, you know, the flap setting of the day as well. So you'd, um, you, you, you'd move this uh, little marker thing on, 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 um, or, or detent take off on the flap selector, which could be almost anywhere on, on the quadrant, um, different, different every, every time. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it was it was a great machine, and uh, I, I have to say that it, it, it was a, a bit of a shock to the system, to uh, having been used to, to firstly to flying around you know, little pointy airplanes in comparison, um, <laughs> and and, yeah. and ones where you know it was you know fl- flown by committee as well. Whereas I mean, Tornado, there were two of us, but basically it was you know in, in the front seat you had all the controls yourself, so you could do it. Whereas uh, on, on the you know on, on the DC10 there were three of you, and sort of decisions had to be you know, made between the three of you um Michael, I, wanted to, I wanted to ask you yeah. sorry to in, sorry to interrupt and maybe this is a good time for this question before yeah. we get too far into your airline career i just wondered about your mindset as a pilot you you come into this very much as a military man and a and a, and a military pilot a fast jet pilot yeah. was there a, a a change in mindset needed or did, you know is that something you were you were aware of yeah, but I mean, very much so. It, it was a very, very different sort of culture. And um, I mean, the first thing was that I was very, very aware that I was a kind of fish out, out of water. So I wound my neck in and, um, you know, and you know, was very keen to to, to watch and, and try and learn. So I wasn't going to push out saying I'm the world's ace pilot because I knew that you know, this was something completely different to, to, to what I was used to. Um, the other th- thing that, well, t- two things which were, which were remarkably different were, um, first of all, that on a you know, on, on an RAF squadron, you've got, uh, well, on two-seat squadron, there are 36 of us, I think, um, air crew and 120 odd um, um, ground crew guys. But amongst the air crew guys, you, we were, were herd animals, so we kind of almost ate, you know, ate, drank, and slept together. Um, you know, you knew everybody <laughs> um, intimately, um, you know, just through because you, you spent your time with them all the time. We'd got from detachments, you know, that it, you, you know, we'd all be sharing rooms and tents and God knows what else. So, you know, you, you got to know people very, very well. Um, you know, flying with each other a lot. You, you know, you got to know who, who, you know, who. who who you knew well, who you liked, who you trusted, who you didn't trust, you know, what who, what people were good at, what they weren't so good at, and all of those things. So you kind of mi- mixed it all together to, to, to make sure you had all work. So that was the first thing, whereas in the airline, it was massive, and you didn't know anybody. And even on the, the DC-10, it was a very small fleet, um, by, by certainly by BA standards. Um, and every time you came to work, there'd be a, you know, a, a two names, your name of a captain, a name of a, a, a flight engineer who you probably never met before in your life, um, who'd suddenly be your best mates for three days and then you'd never see them again in your life either. Um, so that was very different. Um, and the other thing, again, without wishing to sound arrogant, is, is that one, having worked in headquarters I, as a staff officer, I was the kind of, you know, the, the expert in whatever my, my field was. So 
people right up at sort of you know, the top level of it, you know, your, your CEO equivalents w- would be very interested in my views on things. So, you know, my view would be sort. You know, what do you think of this? What's you know, what what would your advice be here? Um, whereas as a um, as, as a first officer, you were kind of right at the bottom of the pecking order, and nobody really cared actually. As, as I say, as long as you could sit in the corner and fly the airplane while two professional sorted things, nobody really gave a stuff what you thought. So those were very sort of different. Um, uh, uh, you know, made, made it a very different um, place to work. Um, as I say, the, the aeroplane itself, again, you know, in a tornado, if you want to turn left, it was, you know, whack on the stick and pull and uh, round the corner you went and pointed off in the right direction. Whereas in um, flying the DC-10, you know, either through the autopilot or, you know, if you're doing it manually flying, you'd still be using flight directors. So if you wanted to turn left, you'd say to the to the non-handling pilot, you know, right heading, whatever it is, how many degrees, and then he'd do that and then he'd call heading select and then you'd, you know, you'd watch the flight directors slowly trolling around and then you'd move to, to, to track it with the, um, you know, with, with your um uh, on your artificial horizon so yeah it was a bit like um the titanic of you know sort of somebody said the captain saying full speed ahead to, to the first, you know, first mate the mate first mate shouting full speed ahead and then the telegraph goes you know, full speed ahead and the engine room shouts full speed ahead and then suddenly it all happens and there was this great sort of lag and i, and I have to say i, I did re- recall feeling sort of quite you know, almost disconnected um, from it in a way that I never was um, fly, flying military aeroplanes. So it was a different from the, from the flying perspective. Um, it was different from the, the culture, if you like, as well. Did, did you still enjoy it? Uh, I, I did. I did enjoy it because uh, um, for, for, for two reasons. Firstly, um, it was a challenge, and uh, I, I kind of I, I relished that really to, 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 to prove to myself that I could do it. Um, and I think also because at heart still was still the same sort of five or six year old who looked at airplanes and went wow that's amazing so actually to be involved <laughs> in it was you know I never grew out of that so so from that perspective yes it, 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 it was it was a very very different kind of enjoyment to to flashing around in, in a fast jet I have to say and, and the whole I mean one of the really interesting to me shall I say things was that you know the whole sort of briefing debriefing and everything else on an airliner is how you're going to take off how you're going to depart how you're going to approach how you're going to land um whereas that was just taken as red on an military airplane because that wasn't important you do that as part of the course what you were interested in is the bit in the middle whereas in an airline that's the easy bit you get airborne put the airplane in have a cup of tea um so that 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 was was very very different mike one um one thing I'd, i i missed out there when you went first to do your crew training on the DC-10. Did you do flight engineer training before piloting or was that an option? No, it wasn't. No, we had um, some very, um, well, the, the flight engineers were, you know, were professional engineers in, in their own right. I mean, most a lot of them had, had spent time I think as ground engineers, they could basically build a DC-10, you know, given enough bits of Lego or whatever. Um, and so, you know, there, there, there was quite a big demarcation if you like between you know what the flight engineer the bits he looked after and the, and the flying bits really so no i had no no engineering knowledge of, of the airplane other than sort of basic understanding of roughly how it worked um and but the detailed knowledge was in the you know was there in, in the flight engineer and again yeah, the, the captain would have a, a pretty good knowledge so and, and the two of them would basically you know, had, had all the information in front of them on, on the flight engine screen which of course was right was well actually well behind me so I, I, I couldn't even see it um so no I, I didn't have any i mean i think you're, you're right if you go back to the days of 
BEA and the, and the Trident and that, then the, 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 the third pilot, if you like, was, was acted as a flight engineer. But no, this was a, a, a dedicated flight engineer who, who had an awful lot to, to, to sort out, actually. So he was, he was kept busy sorting all of his bits and pieces out, um, yeah. keeping, the, keeping the aircraft uh, you know, running and, and, and working as it, as it should do. Did you know that the first G-suit for British pilots was essentially a chest-high pair of fishermen's waders, which were filled with two gallons of water? The water automatically squeezed the pilot's legs as positive G was applied. Did you also know that the Islamic Republic of Iran Air Force's oldest McDonnell Douglas F-4D Phantom is set to clock up more than 70 years in service, having been delivered in 1968 and now subject to life extension programmes taking it to 2040? If your answers to the above are yes, you're probably a regular reader of The Aviation Historian, the quarterly journal that explores the less well-trodden paths of flying history. If your answers are no, visit theaviationhistorian.com and see what you're missing. Now, the the DC-10 had some unusual routes back in the day, didn't it? And um, I know you flew to, was it the Caribbean or, or, or Central America a lot? Yes, in, initially we did lots of. Uh, there was, uh, I think, the routings were were based on the oil routes that Beekeller picked up. So Gatwick to Houston, Atlanta, um, Dallas, Fort Worth, um, and I started doing that. But yes, you're right. There, there was certainly one. No, there weren't. I think there were two, possibly three airplanes actually, which were um, they were leased out to a, a, a team known as AML, which um, everybody thought was stood for. Um, Ailing's money laundering. I don't know if you remember. Um, Ailing was the guy who was the chief executive at the time, and it was one of these virtual airlines, and it was designed to to cut costs for BA and take happy people out. Um, to, they just literally did the Caribbean, uh, and the so the airplane was supposedly it was BA airplane, but it was loaned to AML, which I can't. Was it called Airline Management Limited or something like that? Um, there was the, the flight crew provided with BA, but we had slight alleviations, I think, some of the crew duty rules, I think. And the cabin crew were from uh, one of the charter airlines. I think, was it first, not first choice, but something like that? Um, I can't remember where right. which ones they were. Right. But yeah, so it's just really quite, although they dressed in BA uniforms, and so it looks, so it's a passenger pitched up, and you thought you, you thought we were on BA flight, but actually it was AML. But we did, uh, yeah, it, it did the, the um, Caribbean routes, and, and we were allowed to, um, on our bidding system for work, you could put negative bits in for where you didn't want to go. So I thought, I don't really want to go to Jamaica, so I said, I don't want to go there. So, of course, what happened was I used to go to Jamaica once or twice a month, every bloody month after that. <laughs> um, which, and we used to, so we flew to Kingston. We'd get off the airplane, and the airplane, basically, the airplane was taking passengers to uh, to, to Montego Bay. But the um, the Jamaican government insisted the thing land at the capital, i.e. Kingston. So we'd land at Kingston, we'd get off, and the crew who had flown in the previous day would then take it to Montego Bay and then bring it back again. And then on the third day or fourth day, we'd then take the airplane back. When it came back from Montego Bay, we'd go on and take it back to Gatwick. But um, the... Um, Kingston to Montego Bay is not very far at all. And on the way back from Mo Bay, um, you basically get airborne heading northeast. You go right hand down a bit and you're pretty much lined up with the runway at Kingston. And so there used to be a little competition to see how fast you could do it. And uh, I think we did it one time. We managed to do it in about 14 minutes and we were really pleased. Wow, that's fantastic. Of course, the next time the, the captain said, 
no, I don't think I'll bother that. We'll just do it leisurely. And we did it in 15 minutes. So it just showed that extra minute at a mayhem. It just saved you a minute. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we did that. We uh, Baku was another weird place that we went to. Um, uh, and in, in that, in those days, Azerbaijan was quite well. Baku was Baku woods. Um, it, it was. Um, we used to go there and, and wander down to the market and haggle for uh, for caviar that had just been sort of you know, pulled out of the uh, uh, the, the, the sea there. Um, and uh, Tel Aviv was another one that we, that we did a lot, uh, but that was, that was basically the route structure was uh, it, it, starting off in um, in Atlanta and, and Houston, uh, and, sorry Dallas rather, um, and then um, say moving east was Tel Aviv, Baku, and um, also um, around the Caribbean. Um, I think I went to New York a couple of times as well, actually, which was quite interesting, and to, to JFK. And did you go to Uganda as well, Michael? So you're absolutely right. Yes. right. You're absolutely right. We did. We went to yeah. We went to Entebbe, and uh, yeah, Entebbe. Similarly, there was a um, there was a shuttle to do there. Not, not as exciting as the the Mobe to Kingston one, um, but yeah, <laughs> we we went there. And so the again, similar deal. The airplane would come in, and then uh, the crew that was there would take it uh, down to um, Dar es Salaam, um, and then we actually had the. Basically, the rest of the day we 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 were stuck in a hotel, you know, so we all sat by a pool. All really really tough work being a, being an airline pilot. And then that evening we'd fly it back. Um, and I did one of these was I was a fourteen day integrity. We did three Dar es Salaam shuttles. I was going mad by the end of it. But yeah, you come in over because um, the runway at Entebbe sticks out into uh, Lake Victoria. And uh, you come in at night, and when you put the gear down, and all the landing lights came on, suddenly it was it was like being over Berlin in 1944. This white was flashing past, and I realised it was all the birds that were that were flying around over the lake. And every so often, a bit bump as it bounced off the canopy, uh, the, you know, off the roof of the flight deck. And so I kind of hope it didn't go down the engine. Um, but yeah, somehow they managed to avoid uh, going down the engine. Although I say we, we usually came back with about two or three bird strikes as, as, as we landed from it as well. So uh, yeah, all, all good fun. <laughs> Amazing, Michael. Before we move on. Um, how, how do you sort of look back on your time on the DC-10? It's, it, she, she really is a, a kind of legend amongst airlines, isn't she? And it's a pretty nice aircraft to have on your CV, I would imagine. Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the things about, you know, if you ask any pilot what's the best airplane in, in the world, it's whatever airplane he happens or he or she happens to be flying at the time. Um, and so <laughs> I, I did feel that with the DC-10 and, and, and that. Um, and it was, I, I thought it was, it was a lovely machine, actually. It was a very, I say, very stable. It kind of went where you pointed it. Um, it was it, it was big without being too big. Um, it, and it, it was just a very, a very tidy, tidy airplane, really. Um, it was fun because it was, you know, to, it was my first one. I spent 18 months flying the thing. Um, the, we were in a relatively small fleet, as, as again. So, so although I, you know, I said you, you, you um, perhaps tongue in cheek that you know, you'd see people you know met before and, and then wouldn't see them again. I mean, that, that wasn't quite true on the DC-10. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although true on other fleets, I have to say. But, uh, but, but, um, but, but, you know, what, you, know, you, you would, particularly if you're stuck in Entebbe for two weeks with crews coming in and out, you'd probably see a few familiar faces. Uh, and also, actually, oddly enough, that it had seemed to select or self-select um some people with i don't know perhaps a, a similar view of, of life really um you know, very sort of laid back and and and, uh, and happy to get on with people and yeah you know, there's no kind of um competition there's there, there, you know i think there were a couple of difficult characters people knew who they were and and, and avoided them but generally speaking it was yeah very very um pleasant people to, to, to work with and, and a very pleasant working environment so yeah and, I, I look look upon it very very fondly as, uh, as, as a good time and and, and as a marvelous airplane and you must have bumped into a few other ex-military guys along the way as well i'm sure 
Yes, I did. And, and, and there were quite a few on, on the fleet as well. So every so often, I mean, what, one of the, the things that was said to me fairly early on was a, word, a paternal word of advice from someone was, yeah, don't go telling people about your military flying because actually they don't really care. Um, and so I, I, I never <laughs> sort of, I, I never um, volunteered any, anything, but, but you know, if asked, would answer. But and actually, I found that people were very interested, actually. If you, and I think that if you went and trumpeted about how good you were and how you used to fly this, that and the other, and, and that made you a great pilot, then people probably weren't interested. But if, but you know, through, through conversation it transpired that that's what you've done people were yeah quite often very interested and, and, and very you know very keen to, to hear what you've been up to so yeah it, it, it was good actually it was good fun so you're you're 18 months in and um you're about to change aircraft aren't you you've just alluded to that um triple seven next is that right that's absolutely right. Yes. So the, the DC-10 uh, was, uh, the 777 was coming into service in, as, as I joined the company and um, the the DC-10 was was being phased out. They said, right, it's, it's ridiculous having these airplanes, you don't need them, so we're going to get rid of them, we're going to have lots of 777s. Um, that was interesting. In fact, what I do need to do is just tell you that my first sort of introduction to, to, to the 777 crew, should I say, was we used to go to Tel Aviv on the DC-10. And because we were being phased out, we'd go one day and then we'd then spend two days there while the triple did the next two days, uh, sort of there and back. And then on the fourth day, we'd fly um, back in the DC-10. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the, the DC-10, I did, I, maybe it was Mondays and yeah, Fridays or something. Um, and... This particular day, the the triple seven crew were positioning back to us, and the first officer um, said, "Oh, can I sit on flight deck and, and, and see what goes on?" Um, and so he was sat on the on, on the jump seat uh, behind us, and we we were setting off to, to do a departure out of um, Tel Aviv, and it was it was quite a complex one that involved getting airborne. I think almost immediately doing a turn to the right towards some beacon for how many? Yeah, not very long. But then uh, as, as you rolled out almost at that turn, you then had to select a different beacon and then turn sort of left towards that. So it's like a sort of snaking sort of, uh, you know, zigzag climb as you went up. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned sort of earlier on, uh, the, um, the, the the navigation uh, displays were, were, were sort of not particularly good in, in that, you know, it, one pilot could look at one thing and if you needed to change it, you need to re completely reconfigure that, you know, reach into a different beacon and everything else and all that had to be done. So if you're flying the airplane, of course, you get you know, the guy to do what you want him to do. Um, and the, the um, other thing was when you, for example, on takeoff, it, it, because quite a lot of stuff needed to be done because it was an old-fashioned airplane, there were quite a lot of things that had to be said. So you, you'd get airborne and uh, the first thousand feet, it's fairly quiet. Then you got to um, acceleration altitude, which is where you you know you drop the nose and start accelerating, having got away from the ground. So the non-handling pilot shouted AA and then the handling pilot said something else. And then the, the other thing set climb power and then the flight engineer would say setting climb power and then he'd say climb power set. And in the meantime, you would also shouted and asked for you know, crowd what um, uh, various nav modes you wanted. So this was the background. Uh, when the 777 came in, they had a different philosophy and it was a silent cockpit philosophy whereby as you got airborne, the airplane did its thing and most of it all happened you know, because it's a modern airplane all very automatically. And so the only things that would be said was if something cropped up that you weren't expecting. So you know, if something didn't transition into a climb phase or whatever, then the non-handling pilot would say it. So basically, you'd only say something if something 
unexpected happened. So generally speaking, pretty much every takeoff you did in a triple seven was absolutely silent. So we got airborne from um, from Tel Aviv down the runway, and at a thousand feet, all hell broke loose. And there's three of us shouting at each other and hands flashing across <laughs> the flight deck. <laughs> and I, at some stage, I happened to glance back and I saw this guy, this first officer from the triple seven, and his jaw was on the floor. Is it? What are these people doing? <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was the triple seven. Very different. Um, Different as well, because there were just the two of you. There was the captain, first officer, and so the sort of decision-making dynamic was different. And as a first officer, you felt much more included because, you know, the captain, rather than asking the expert for flight engineer, what he thought would actually, you know, if he wanted to, you know, to, to, to try out his options or whatever, would, would would ask you because there's nobody else to ask, basically, short of calling in the, the chief steward. Right? But so, so you became much more part of, uh, of the operation in, in that way. Um, Actually, the other thing, bizarrely, is that the DC-10 didn't have a steering tiller. So if you were the first officer and you were handling the, the aeroplane, you'd only handle it in the air because on the ground, the captain had to do it because he was in person with, with a steering tiller. <laughs> and, and similarly, although you do an external check, you know, walk around check on every aeroplane before you fly it, on the DC-10, that was the flight engineer's job. So as first officer, you did, didn't have an awful lot to do, really. Um, but um, yeah, so I had to learn to suddenly do all that. Um, and But yeah, the, the triple was... A lovely airplane, actually, very, very well designed and all mod cons, um, you know, having a, um, a flight management um, computer, etc., which the DC-10 didn't have. So, um, you know, did all the clever things for you, plugged in your route, etc. Because in the DC-10, we had, I think we had about three or four waypoints. So, you, you know, have the way you come from where you were going and the one after that. And as it, as it flicked over, you had to type in the next one. Whereas in the, on the um, triple and most you know, most modern airplanes, it's automatically uploaded and, 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 the, and the machine just flicks over to the next one as, as you go. So that, that was all great. And again, I remember um, my first flight in it getting airborne. And whereas the DC-10 was this sort of really stable, like an old cart horse off it went, the triple was sort of uh, dancing around all over the place, despite being a very, very big <laughs> airplane. And so it was, a, you know, really very, very different from that perspective, a much more lively machine. Um, and, uh, and of course, fly-by-wire as well, which, um, again, um, I've obviously been used to, to fly-by-wire on the, in the tornado. But um, yeah, so the um, 777 fly-by-wire, the Boeing approached fly-by-wire um, in a different way to Airbus, as I discovered when I went up to the Airbus, and <laughs> Boeing um, fly-by-wire is um, speed um, stable. So basically, if you, you trim the airplane to a speed, so if you put more power on, it stays at the speed because the airplane is trimmed, so if you put more power on, the nose will rise, and simply take power off, the, the nose will drop because the airplane tries to maintain the speed that you've told it to fly at using the power that you've given it. Um, and that is basically what a real airplane does, if you like. So, so that's quite similar in a way. And, and really, the, the, the only difference is that, um, I, that, that, that if you turned n normally in an airplane, when, when you put bank on, you then have to pull back a bit. But on the uh, on the triple seven, you didn't because um, it, you know it, it just flew around level. Um, so that was really the only, only major difference that, that made you think that, that it was anything else. Um, in comparison, the Airbus, which I then flew, um, sort of four bit years later on, um, is flight path stable. So in that case, you point it in that direction and it keeps going in that direction. So if you um, put power on, it, the nose won't rise, it will just keep going in the same direction, but go faster. And similarly, if you pull power back, it will go in the same direction, but go slower. So that's a sort of very different concept, if you like, to, to, to how, you know, how, how you solve the, um, the um, flight, flight control solution or problem um, 
but yeah, the the the, 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 the triple seven was it was it was a really nice machine actually, and I, I did enjoy flying it. And you know, it, it had some long legs on it, so we got down to yeah some bits of South America, Buenos Aires. I remember going to there. I remember going across to to um, Japan as well, um, Narita, um, and also actually on to Tel Aviv, which is um, oddly enough the only place I've been to in all four aircraft types that flew with BA. Um, <laughs> Some so, of the some of the numbers associated with the triple when you when you read them, Michael, are extraordinary. And we mustn't forget this is this is a twin engine aircraft, isn't it? And uh, I guess we're seeing some big leaps in technology at this point. Maybe not just in you've mentioned fly by wire and, and some of the computing, but maybe the actual engines themselves. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, those engines were. Um, I th- I'm trying to think of the figures exactly, but it was something around about sort of uh, 97, 98,000 pounds of thrust per engine, um, given that the, um, I think the jumbo engines were at 54. So you know, the, 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 almost double the power really um, in, in, in just one engine. And, and that was, I get, you know, the reason why the DC-10 had three engines, which uh, there wasn't the engine technology around the time to, to give it two. I think the original plan was for um, for it to be a twin engine airplane. They suddenly realized that there were no engines with enough power. Um, but yeah, by, by the time that the, the triple came along, yes, you've got these massive, great big engines that you could, uh, you know, sort of were slinging out huge amounts of power. So you're right. I mean, that, that yeah, engine technology was was the big, I guess, the really big thing that the, the, the triple seven brought in. Um, it, interesting. It also had, um, uh, you know, um, systems in to, to help you. So in the event of an engine failure during the takeoff, there's a thing called TAC, uh, thrust asymmetry compensation. So although you, you know. I, if it was a, you know, a raw aeroplane, you you would have to apply a huge amount of rudder to keep things straight against the you know, the power of the, of the good engine. Um, it actually did. It, it gave you a bit of a hand. It applied a bit for you. So you just have to put a little bit. So it gave you enough to sort of make sure that you realise okay. some rudder in and then remind you that it was there. But basically, it took it out itself. Um, did you um, did you notice much difference between the the fleet in terms of the you know the the, the makeup of the fleet and the the person? The different aircraft, do you think, have a different kind of fleet in terms of the people um, flying them? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does actually. Yeah, you're right. Um, it, yes, again, the triple again had um, was basically it was, it, it, it was a, a, a yeah it was a nice bunch of guys actually. BA do 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 well in their selection. They they they, they are good, but it, yeah, generally like minded people had come to the triple. Um, although later on, um, this is massive, sounds like I'm sort of slagging off my my college it's probably a bit unfair, but I think that the seven four seven had become because it was it was sort of seen as that as that that's the sort of top end of the company and that's where the high rollers were and more the money was that people were kind of quite materialistic whereas you know certainly on, on the 10 they weren't and, and i don't think that was the case either on, on initially on the trip i think as the fleet got bigger it uh, it attracted rather more people who were sort of chasing money and things um but no it, it was it was it, it was a nice airplane and, and a nice bunch of people but again a much much bigger fleet than uh, than was the case on the um on the dc-10 um, and again, talking about aircraft types, that yeah, there were some various subtypes there. Um, there I think we had 200 and 300. I think I'm right in saying uh, no. We no, we just had the just had the 200. I think there were different sort. There was the well, some had um, the General Electric engines, um, and I can't remember how many of those we had. Then a whole lot came in with the Rolls Royce engines, and um, some of the initial GE engine ones were, I think, a slightly different configuration in terms of galleys and seats and the rest of it and those were ones that we used to go to I think about four of them actually that we used to go to the Middle East mainly um, but actually flying the airplanes were almost almost identical I think the only thing was that on the on the Rolls-Royce ones bizarrely the engine anti-ice 
didn't work automatically, so you had to switch on. Okay. <laughs> but other than that, yeah, the aeroplanes are virtually identical in terms of handling. You, you wouldn't notice the difference at all. G'day, I'm Dave Homewood of the Wings Over New Zealand show, New Zealand's only regular aviation podcast series. The Wings Over New Zealand show covers all sorts of aviation topics, with a New Zealand flavour but an international appeal. From interviews with veterans and aviation personalities, to topics like military aviation, warbirds, air shows, historians, authors, museums, aviation events, and much, much more. We have an extensive archive of episodes that you can go back to, and there are new episodes coming out all the time. Search for the Wings Over New Zealand show. Oh, and by the way, we love Extended. It's a great show. Well done, guys. The other thing that I guess would have been quite significant, Michael, would have been your sort of change of lifestyle, I suppose. Um, you know, I, I guess um, at least you knew you no one was going to sort of phone you for a no-notice sort of tachyval or confine you to base for two weeks or drag you off to go and live in a tent or something similar. How, how did you sort of acclimatise to all of that? Yeah. Or did you just embrace this uh, maybe maybe more comfortable lifestyle? Yeah, it was certainly an awful lot more comfortable. It, it was one of those things of, of sorting some roundabouts, like like so many things in life. I mean, one of the, as I say, the thing about being in on an Air Force squadron was, was this intense sort of camaraderie, colleagueship, whatever you want to call it, a, a bunch of people that you knew really, really well who would all pull together and, uh, you know, help each other out. Um, uh, and and uh, the the feeling of very much being part of a very cohesive team um as you say that you'd get screwed around a lot um but generally speaking um you did have you know we didn't tend to work weekends even on, on detachments we didn't tend to work weekends um you didn't tend to work public holidays you didn't tend to work sort of christmas and new year the air force generally shut over christmas and new year because russians were going to come then um so th- that side of it there, there, there was on you know and, and you knew that you'd be going off to i don't know sardinia for two weeks in you know in may so those two weeks would be blocked out but you know other than that you'd be around so um that side of it was quite predictable you put your leave in if you didn't get leave you wanted you go back to it's like when i say can we change this whatever and he'd say well yeah okay we'll see what we can do um whereas in ba you were an individual in a massive system and whereas i would describe being in the air force as a way of life i think being in the airline was a job um and the difference was that as as you have correctly pointed out I mean, we were very well looked after you go you know we stayed in very nice hotels in nice places you, you know we pitched up but the airplane all the planning had been done for us we had to decide how much fuel we wanted and perhaps a few other bits of details and, and, and um, you know, what the weather was like in various routes along the route if you had to divert. But basically most of the hard work was done. Um, and at the far end, you know, there'd be the company um, reps to pick us up and put us on a coach and send us off to a nice hotel and then pick us up whatever time it wanted to be. And and so all, all that side of things was very, was very well, almost cosseted if you like. But um, as I say, you were virtually always in the, in the company of strangers in, in many respects. And also... Your your roster would come out. With, it was a bidding system, so you, you'd bid for the work you wanted to do, and then invariably didn't get that and got some given something completely different. But that meant or days off that you you didn't get the days off you wanted, so you'd end up working. Yeah, I mean, the number of weddings, christenings, parties, and God knows what else. I've you know, funerals I've not been able to attend because you know the the, the work roster didn't allow it. Um, you know, someone would say, "Well, I've got a party in six months' time." Can you come? Well, the answer is, well, I don't know, and I won't know. And if there are two things happening in a month, I might be able to get to one of them if I'm lucky. So, <laughs> from that perspective, you know, that's why now that I'm retired, it's fantastic because I can go to things. And, you know, say yes, I'll be there in six months' time, but I couldn't until you know until I finished the job. Um, and you, so you had 
in reality, not a lot of control over your life. Um, and so it was in a sort of gilded cage almost. Um, and also every probably t- once or twice a year, you'd be on, on reserve, which would mean that you have a whole month where you don't know what you're doing. And they'd ring you up the night before and say, right, tomorrow you're going to be on standby between these hours. And in that time, you know, just as you're about to knock it on the head, you get a phone call saying, right, I need you down. And you had to be there within two hours of the phone call saying, yeah, ready to go. So right, two hours time. In fact, it, it worked quite nicely one time. I went to, um, got a phone call one Saturday evening, uh, just as about half an hour before, um, I, a bit, you know, before my standby stop. They said, right, we need you in. You're going to Buenos Aires, which I couldn't believe because at the time, the way that, um, Firstly, it was somewhere I'd always wanted to go. And secondly, because um, it was one of the most sought after trips on the whole of the network because it was worth a lot of money and allowances. And <laughs> what happened was it was usually about the, t- the, the senior, the, perhaps the top senior 20 crews went there. So I turned up <laughs> at, at, the, um, at the crew report centre and I, again, bizarrely recognised another captain. I mean, so I've just been called in for Buenos Aires. Oh, so have I. So the two of us came in and there were two guys sort of sitting over by, by the briefing thing. And uh, they looked at us and they said, hi, who are you guys? And we said, oh, we're, we're off to Buenos Aires with you. And they, and they, they, they started, they said, but Nigel and Charles come, uh, come on, on Thursdays. <laughs> yeah, but we're here. So we had a very nice place over there. We got to the far end. And you, <laughs> there were quite a few airplanes yeah, because of the way the, the route structure worked. I think you ended up with about three or four crews. And that evening, I think we walked into the bar and it's one of those things like you walk into the Western, the whole room, it's silence. They looked around and said, well, who are you guys? Oh, we came in with other two guys. We, you know, we, uh, <laughs> I don't know what Nigel and Charles have got up to, which took them too often. But, uh, yeah, I was very grateful for They were clearly bribing someone who did the uh, the rotors or something. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> so, um, Michael, how long did you spend on the triple? And I know the answer to this next question, which is what came next, because yeah. there's this whole Airbus Boeing debate that constantly goes on and um, obviously you're about to make the switch aren't you from one to the other yes voluntarily um, I have to say so I did another four and a half years on the on the triple seven and that was enough to, to for me to see it was so different from from, from what I've been used to in the airport there and, and it was you know I say there was a challenge to do it and it's interesting and, and and it was perceived to be you know long was the place to be but I realized that it was uh, that I I was you know, after the initial euphoria and, uh, and novelty had worn off, that actually I find it mind-numbingly boring. Um, you know, you sit, get on an airplane. If there's three of you, you know, you're going to point, um, you know, point it westwards or eastwards, whatever, and uh, you know, you're going to sit there for, you know, it's an 11-hour flight, so you're going to spend, you know, most of that sat there doing absolutely nothing so everybody does it all itself um and you might have um two and a half hours sat in a you know comfy chair somewhere as your sort of so-called relief so that you're legal to you know your legal rest um to arrive somewhere where you're going to be sort of eight hours out of kilter with local time and then you know again not with people that you know particularly well but yeah nice people to have a, a couple of years with but then it's you know time to come back you're going to fly back overnight when you should be sleeping etc uh, etc et so i thought right i'm going to go short or i also thought well if a command is going to come up it'll come up in short haul. So I spent you know, six years as a first officer. So I, I um, uh, asked to be sent to short haul as a first officer, which was almost unheard of because most people are desperate to get off short haul and go long haul. So of course I pitched up and it's the only course that I've ever done in my entire flying career that I knew I was going to pass when I started it and had no doubts all the way through because, you know, what are they going to do? Send me back to the 777? <laughs> um, so, I, uh, so, so I did that and I 
I have to say, although I found the um, the Airbus very weird to start with, because you know it, it was so different in, in in things like having a side stick, it had a different control rule. I've already mentioned it had um, a different the, the whereas the Boeing had the Boeing flight management computer, uh, which was the way you interface with the airplane. The Airbus had the Airbus flight management and guidance system FMG. Yeah. Uh, FMGS. So, uh, so, so again, of course, that you know had this different number of buttons because it had to be different, and you press different buttons in a different way. Um, and I found that quite weird. You know, thinking, well, who on earth came up with this idiot way of doing things? But actually, as I got used to it, I suddenly realised that actually it was the best way of doing it. Um, and I, yeah, the the, um, the side stick um, you get used to, and somebody I said, did you get used to that fairly quickly? I said, yeah, but it takes you about thirty seconds, I think. <laughs> and then, and then you think, why, why don't all airplanes have a little side stick instead of a huge great sort of uh, you know control wheel like the uh, like the Titanic? Um, so I, yeah, I, I I did that for two years, and then I I got a command on the Airbus, so just moved from the right hand seat to the left hand seat. And again, part of the plan really, because I when I did my um, conversion onto the Airbus to start with. Uh, the guy who went through with me on the course was a guy who'd been on the on the jumbo for I don't know 15 years or something, and so he was coming back to to fly this little aeroplane that he'd never flown before. So he's going from Boeing to Airbus, he's going from long haul to short haul, and he was going from the you know sit in the right seat and do nothing to oh my god everything's your fault seat. Um, and, and poor bloke who was under so much stress, and of course I was under no stress at all because I, you know, I was I, I was on you know on a you know, a win win situation really. So you know, when it came for me to do the command course to, to move from right seat to left seat, it, it, it was yeah, relatively straightforward because I'd already taken two other variables out. I, I knew the airplane, I knew the routes, um, and, and uh, you know, I, I could see how it all worked. So it, it, it made a fairly smooth transition. Um, and then I spent the next what sort of uh, ten years flying the airplane. And again, we flew the 319, we flew the 320, and the 321. So um, whereas the Boeing airplanes were all pretty much the same when you flew them. You know, different variants all handle the same. The the, the Airbuses were actually quite quite different, really. Um, you could tell that the airplane had been designed as, as a three twenty because that everything was pretty much well balanced. The three nineteen, I took great dislike to when I started it. But actually, quite came to quite love it really. It was, a, it was like a sort of crisp packet in the, in the wind. You know, you get gusty, it'd be all over the shop. But it's um, but but it was quite it was quite fun though in its own little way. And I, and I I was quite fond of it. Little dinky little airplane. And then the three twenty one was the one that I didn't really like at all. It was uh, it was a sort of big sort of wallowing wallowing thing because it was this long fuselage stuck on the same wing that was designed for three twenty. So it was, you felt there wasn't quite enough wing there. And it yeah, it was I, I just thought it was very sort of vague sort of airplane. It didn't really you know, sort of wallowed around everywhere. I didn't particularly like it. But um, but the other two I, I did like actually. And uh, you know as I say I, th- I think the whole uh, way that uh, that Airbus um, integrate uh, you know the the the, the, the interface between pilot and, and and automatic so i think on airbus is, is much better than, than than boeing and did short haul flying tickle those boxes that you hoped it would it did yeah it was great fun actually i really enjoyed the, the, the cut and thrust of, of short haul flying um and it was it wasn't just the flying it was a lot of the management in terms of you know we'd be flying three sectors a day now you know or sometimes four but you know three sectors you go somewhere come back you so you had to leave heathrow which is a nightmare you then come back into it which is a nightmare you then have to turn around and then go back out which is a nightmare <laughs> So, uh, you know, so you get airborne and you go somewhere <laughs> anywhere, it didn't matter where, it's great, wow, this is fantastic. Um, but the, just the challenge of doing that, uh, but also the challenge of dealing with people, which, which again was, was quite fun in a, in a weird kind of way, because, you know, quite often there'd be, 
you know, like the weather will be awful at London or the thunderstorms or something. Say, so, right, you've got a, you've now got a, you know, a two hour delay. So now you've got to explain to all these grumpy passengers why you've got them on the airplane and, you know, and you're not going to get airborne for another two hours and, uh, you know, what you're going to do about it and, uh, you know, why you've done it and, and, and keeping them informed uh, and, yeah, it, it was quite a challenge to do that because it was great when you know they got on all grumpy and then got off being quite happy with what you'd done for them and 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 that I I enjoyed really that that kind of managing the the, the people and again it, from, from the perspective of, of being an airline captain that was the important bit really not so much the airplane because that was your professional first officer dealt with the flying side of it you dealt with all the other fastballs and the people um you know, keep keeping them happy um, and so yeah I, I really did enjoy that actually it's good fun. And having said all of that, you then come back to Boeing again, don't you? I, I presume yeah. for the end of your um, yeah, I do ca- um, career. I, yeah, I'd um, the short haul had had been great. The work pattern changed in a way that didn't necessarily meet my expectations, shall we say? In that, when I'd started, and for most of it, I would aim to do. Um, almost almost like it in terms of work, home work balance uh, sort of long haul uh, type structures that I go to work for three days and then come back again um, and which I quite like and there's some really lovely four day tours that, 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 I, that I took great liking to as well really early so you start stupidly early in the morning um, and so the first day you'd arrive and you're a little bit sort of knackered because you, you know like you don't sleep well the night before and, and, and so you, but then by the time you've done a full day's work you were tired so you, you'd arrive somewhere you'd have an early you know perhaps an early beer and an early meal and then go to bed and sleep really well and wake up early the next day and then do it all over again and so on and so it, it was it was quite fun and we entered quite a nice place and you arrive sort of around about lunchtime so you have an afternoon there and then just an early bed so that, that that was quite good but it became um there were the, 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 those trips got shorter which for me was a problem side so an hour and 15 hour 30 drive which i didn't want to do every day um and so and also we'd end up with we'd go somewhere back early and then we'd wait around in terminal five for you know three hours and then go off somewhere and you think about well, three hours wasted i could have been somewhere else so it was getting a bit tedious so i thought I'd, I'd, you know what i'll be something really radical i'll go back to long haul um <laughs> in a way it was a bit of a, a you know, sort of one of those things because as i said you know long haul has always been perceived as being that you know the, 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 where the streets are paved with gold and, and the place to be you know that, that that's the sort of the top end of the company and i thought yeah it'd be nice because when i joined that you know um, the retirement age was 55 and there was absolutely no chance I'd ever get a long haul command and then all that, that changed and suddenly yeah, here was an opportunity that yeah I could actually get one so I snuck into the 787 um, and I again it, it, it was it, it's a lovely machine it's been really well thought out um, very very clever bits and pieces um, I'll, t- I'll tell you what's a bit strange Michael sorry to interrupt yeah. whilst we've been talking just for my own sanity I've just wanted to check to see when the aircraft first flew yeah I still I still think of it as being really really new but it's going to be 13 years this year <laughs> since, oh, wow. it's yeah. first, since it's yeah. first flight yeah, it's uh, so I, I i must be getting older at a quicker rate than everything else <laughs> I, I think probably but uh but we, we are we are still talking about a sort of cutting edge airliner aren't we well we are i mean it is i mean it's also you know lots of it's plastic um things like the all the um air for for the um air conditioning cabin conditioning all comes from direct from outside most airplanes um, it goes through. It comes from from the engine um, fan, um, you know, the, 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 the cold the cold air that's being blown through the fan, so it's been compressed and comes off the engine that way. Uh, but this comes straight from outside, so the idea is that there's no chance whatsoever of any contamination ever en- en- entering into it. 
which is true until the uh, plastic valve in it goes and then fills a cabin full of plastic smoke, which has happened a few times. But um, uh, and things like the um, the the starters are electric. So to start the engine, it's uh, starter generators. So the thing start, uh, you know, it once you when you initiate engine start, the thing that will become the generator is actually the, the works the opposite the opposite way around. It then discharges and drives the engine around till the engine becomes self-sustaining. Then it drives back drives the thing the the, the electric thing then becomes a generator. So okay. yeah, these uh, generator starters and things like that. So uh, and lots of very very clever bits of kit of, of um, um, electronics in the aeroplane sorting everything out. Uh, silly things like when you press the button to flush the toilet, it doesn't actually flush the toilet. It sends a message to the computer saying flush the toilet. So there's this long gap <laughs> as, as the wigglies go down the wire to the computer. The computer is that fl- flush by wire? <laughs> it is flush by wire, yes. But I got really, really excited because I thought I, it's got a head-up display. I thought, well, I used to fly airplanes with head-up displays when I was young, and they were fantastic. Um but I, I, I was I have to say I was quite underwhelmed by the one on the triple because it's it's actually massive, and the problem is that when you look at the head down instrument, all the information that you want is there straight there. You look at it and it's there. Whereas in the HUD, it was so big that you actually had to move your head around quite a lot to see the information that you wanted. So actually, it'd be better off, frankly, just to you know, I fold it away to be honest. With you. But the other thing, I mean, we mentioned um, engine technology, and that was the other thing about the the, the seven eight seven is is the engine is just so powerful. And the most aircraft um, derate engines on take well, all, all airlines don't think derate engines on takeoff, so you don't uh, you don't get airborne full power, so you, you preserve engine life. Yeah. But on the seven eight seven, they were double derated, so you derate it for um, you know you, you, you first of all you derate it, so well we'll only give you eighty percent, and then you'd say well how much that do I actually need to you know reduce it for the conditions of the day, and going to the Middle East for example. I remember looking down and seeing, as we trundled down the runway, the thing had given us, I think, 66%. That's what it worked out it needed. And, it, you know, that's perfectly oh But it just shows that it, it really, yeah, the engines were wow. that powerful and that good that, you know, that you, you, were, you were using very little power to get to, you know, to get airborne to go anywhere, really. In fact, I think at one stage they, they, they changed the climb um, uh, profile um, from the initial one. But at one stage you get airborne with 66% and then it had put power on as it then, because <laughs> most airplanes take power off and get, as they get to acceleration altitude, they sort of nose forward and power comes back. But it, it went the other way around on, on seven to start with. I think they then thought, no, that's pretty silly, so we'll keep it as it is. But but yeah, I mean, uh, the, it, it was a you know, massively, uh, I would, wouldn't say overpowered, but you know, powerful engines, um, lightweight because it was because of the um, the fiber um, or uh, the composite materials that have been, that have been built on, and so you could get straight out to you know, up to good, really good, you know, up to 38, 39, 40 odd thousand feet um, very quickly, um, which put you above you know, weather and things. So it's great airplane for avoiding weather. Everybody else is sort of turning left and turning right to avoid this, that, and the other. You just sort of plow on in a straight line above everything, sort of uh, you know. That doesn't happen, really. Um, so it was, it was a really lovely from that perspective. Yeah, yeah. Mike, you've had you, you've been you've been very uh, shy away from using the word lucky because you, you've earned it. But you've been you've had a fantastic career in aviation. Um, just finally, for me, uh, Peter's been struggling a bit technically, so he's been sitting there listening to us ramble on for an hour or so. So uh, I will hand back to him in a second. This is maybe a slightly unfair question, um, Mike. If you meet people now, they ask you, you know, oh, you know, what what did you do? What was your career? Do you do you think of yourself just as Michael Napier pilot, 
in the past or do you think you'll always be a fighter pilot or do, how, how does that kind of work in your head um yeah i think yeah I, <laughs> my ambition was always to join the raf and be a pilot and yeah that I, and i'm that probably of succeeding at doing that is probably yeah still my my proudest um my, well actually my second most proud, my proudest moment was actually last summer when my my son got his raf wings actually um following my footsteps but no Fantastic. I, 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 I do see myself as yeah as an RAF pilot, and that that was one of the bizarre things. Again, I think in the airline was yeah certainly for the first. I, it took me quite a long time to sort of get used to the fact that I wasn't in the RAF anymore, and I kept thinking of myself as sort of being being an RAF pilot on detachment to an airline. Um, so yeah, I you know in fact somebody asked a friend to take them and say so so, uh, so are, are you captain squadron leader or squadron captain and i said well i'm mister actually uh, <laughs> but, 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 yeah I, I don't you know the as i say i i it was great i mean being an airline pilot was great and uh, i don't knock it and uh, you know i'm grateful for the opportunity that, that, that it gave me uh for, for, you know, as, as a yeah as, as a way a way of earning a living it, it, it was a wonderful way to do it but yeah i mean the the, the achievement in my life i look back on this is still very much the the, the military flying that i did um, and, you know, I'll go back to squadron reunions, but I can't imagine I'll ever go back to a BA reunion, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, Mike, I've got a, a question for you, which comes away from, from airlines, but was something we were talking about offline. Um, and that was Tug Wilson's book and the interview that Gareth did on the, the F4 Phantom. Um One of the things you said was it really captured the atmosphere and the feeling around the RAF at at that time. If you take that into the airline world, um, how would you sort of sum up that culture and that feeling of, of being an airline pilot? I, it's a difficult um it's a difficult one to answer because as i say because they are so different it's almost a like chalk and cheese where you know being on a, on a squadron as tug has has very eloquently captured it, you know it is sort of being a member of a tribe and going around together and uh, 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 and military flying i say of of itself is is very different from, i mean the when Granny wants, you know, flies to Malaga for holidays, you don't want exciting flights. She wants a really boring one, you know. That's a nice, <laughs> ironic, and that bit the yeah. And the nice landing, um, and that's all that matters really. And and that's what you you aspire to a really boring flight because that's what you want. Because you don't want things to go wrong, um, and and you don't yeah. want to sort of uh, live on the edge. So you know, it's different. I mean, I I'm in touch with a, um, a yes. Yeah, RAF friends who then joined the airline. So, so I see. But there's actually of you know I spent twenty odd years in the RAF. Have any huge number of, uh, of friends and acquaintances who you know uh, we. I've been to a funeral already this year. I went to another uh, tornado get together, and those it's like sort of you arrive. It's like speed dating. You arrive in this sort of great melee of people, and it's like mate, hey, how are you doing? And you, have chat, and you kind of you know everybody, you know everybody's faces, you know what they did, who they were. You end up with a you know, and then you turn around, there's somebody else, and, oh, and, you know. Uh, whereas I think if I pitched up at, at BA. A similar to I'd look and I go I don't know if anybody is here and I'm in touch with one guy actually who who I wasn't in touch with before I joined the company yeah, yeah, before I, I joined the company and he is he I flew with him a couple of times he lives down the road from me and he's actually another ex-military pilot so well, he's American but uh, you know it's um yeah so so it's a very different and I don't know how you would, would capture it in uh, you know if we if if Tug were an airline pilot and he was he, he was to write you know, confessions of an airline pilot I don't know how he'd capture it because it's 
it's moments of um, you know, closeness, I suppose, moments of, uh, of mainly social fun, um, but moments of it, and and yeah, n nothing like the kind of meaning meaningfulness, if you like, of uh, of being on on a, on a frontline squadron. And Peter, don't forget, Michael's one of those RF Germany types, and we know from Tug that they already had an <laughs> elevated opinion of themselves. Well, absolutely right. <laughs> and oddly enough, well, funny you should say that because because when when I think of of you know I. I yeah, I do specifically myself see myself as an RAF Germany pilot. Actually, I do. Um, that was I did what three tours at Bruges, and I did a, a short tour at the headquarters at Rheindahl. And so, yeah, to to me, I, I am RAF Germany, and um, you know, the bigger RAF is largely irrelevant, really. That, that wasn't the real RAF. Really. Michael, did you ever get the chance to to fly in uh, in an F four? No, I didn't actually. No, um, I foreign types I've flown in. I've flown in. I flew in an F sixteen and F eighteen. Uh, F-18 with a pan, uh, with a yeah huge panda bear, um, a, um, a Harrier three and ten, not three, no four and ten, um, and a Czech L-39, I think. Uh, my wow, a bad haul. And on that long haul point, it's time to wrap it up. So thank you so much, Michael, for for joining us and, and sharing that with us. Um, where can we find you online? Uh, I am online. I've got a Twitter actually, and I can't remember. I think I think if you look for Mike Napier or Michael Napier, I think you'll find it there. It's, it's got it's Michael and some numbers which I can't remember because I I didn't quite get that right when I set it up. But but yeah, I, but, but Twitter's the main thing. I am on Facebook. It's Michael Napier on Facebook, although I don't tend to use that quite as much. Um, and I do also have a website which I need to update. Actually, I haven't done for a while, but it's got some stuff about the early books. So uh, and I think that is mjwnapier.com. Excellent and. One of your books, in fact, two of your books do actually have an F4 Phantom on there. Just before we go there, Michael, you got any questions for Tug? Because he's coming back and we're going to grill him. Oh, come on. <laughs> there, must be, there must be some banterous um, question I can I, ask him. Well, yeah. I was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you never get to fly the real, real airplane. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> actually, actually I think he must have been around at the time. I, I, I'd like to know if he was around at an evening when I mean yeah he must have been we turned up from Bruggen when I was on 31 squadron and we um gate crashed a happy hour in the mess at Wildenrath and the station commander was a, a um a, a very charismatic guy at Wildenrath called Ali Mackay and I just remember him refereeing this game of mess rugby that we ended up with and it was it was so the the the, the dining room was cleared and the sides you know you imagine there was a, a 31 score an old massive one and nothing <laughs> really nice to do in my and a cabbage in the middle and uh so <laughs> great fight and somebody would just about get the cabbage to the far end but of course it had hardly any leaves on it and just as it was about to score uh, a trial was about to be scored ali mccall was another cabbage whole one <laughs> so basically you know, at the end of it there was some bruised and battered people and cabbage leaves everywhere it was great fun but i don't know if tug was there for that i'm sure he probably wouldn't be but... I, I have just scribbled that down so i don't forget yeah um yeah yeah do, do, do give him my uh do give him my best wishes and uh yeah, I'd, I'd say, I'd thank you. <laughs> well, on that note, we'd like to thank White Hearts and Peter Dixon, as well as the wider extended family of supporters, including the Aviation Historian, the Aviation Enthusiast Book Club and Aircrew Book Review. Gareth, where can we find you online? So I'm Gareth underscore Stringer on Twitter. Uh, Michael, just from me, thank you very much. Keep 
churning the books out they're they're brilliant tornado uh, Ty- tigress is one of the best that i've i've read um i need to read your javelin book next so that's uh that's next on the list but thanks for doing this tonight oh, yeah thank you very much and you can find me peter johnson at nascot hornet on twitter and tim Anelli. you can find on extended's twitter facebook and instagram feeds that's it with the arrival of the music it's goodbye from michael napier goodbye and it's goodbye from gareth strenger goodbye see you soon and it's goodbye from me peter johnson remember stay tuned to this frequency that is of course aerospace radio station extended Extended would like to thank its partners, Global Aviation Resource, the Royal Aeronautical Society and XTP Media for their support in helping to present and produce the programme. Our legal policy and use of our material can be found on our website. Please do ask before using anything you hear. The programme is produced with a Creative Commons licence. cockpit's very cramped you've got leg restraints on you're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it just taking me on the trip of a lifetime in a f-18f super hornet knowing how to recognize a store being taught like visually and the basic ppl it wouldn't bother me Thanks for listening to Extended. And don't forget, we want you to contact us. Get involved at aviation-extended.co.uk is the email address you need. Extended. This is XTP Media.